Well, Colossians. Sam gave you guys an introduction to the book uh, last week. And then he gave away like the supreme text <laughs> for me to teach this week. So hopefully I don't muck it up for you. Uh, I, as we dive into this book, you're going to see one of the earliest hymns uh, that is recorded for us in the New Testament, a, a hymn that is about Jesus and about his preeminence, and, and we'll, we'll get into that in just a minute. But I was thinking about, you know, kind of what is the point of this passage that we are about to embark on? What is Paul really hoping to communicate to us? And it made me think of um, a story from Ray Comfort. Anybody here heard of Ray Comfort? Any? Okay, he's a well-known evangelist and street preacher. He goes out on the, the streets and, and preaches the gospel to people, very effective at what he does. But in one of his flagship teachings called Hell's Best Kept Secret, he gives a great analogy in talking about uh, the need for the gospel. And he talks about how, imagine you are on a plane, and you're, you're cruising at 30,000 feet, you know, uh, above the, the planet, above the earth, and all of a sudden, the stewardess kind of comes up to you, and she says, hey, how are you doing today? Hey, I just wanted, I wanted to let you know about something we have. It's, a, it's an offering that we have here on the airlines, and she pulls out this this backpack, this giant backpack, she says, this is the latest thing. It's a, it's a parachute. And I, I tell you what, if you, if you just put it on, what you're going to see is that it is going to make your ride so much more better. You're, you're going to really enjoy your experience on our airline. It's going to be so wonderful. So go ahead and, you know, just try it on. You think, wow, you know, she's, she's so enthusiastic. I mean, okay. Well, great. And so you, you put this giant, cumbersome you know, parachute on, and you, you click it on, and she says, okay, now, now sit back in your seat. And so you sit down, and you know, you're kind of like trying to find a comfortable way to sit on the chair, and you can't quite figure it out, and it's uncomfortable. And over time, as you sit there, you look around. Well, nobody else is wearing their parachute. And I'm the only uncomfortable one around me. <laughs> And you think, fine, I'm, I'm just so, nothing is quite settled in me ever since I put this thing on. And so eventually what happens is you say, you know what, this is not adding to my experience of flying with, with this airline. And it really isn't giving me what it promised. And as a matter of fact, I'm highly uncomfortable as a result of wearing it. And I'm the only one that I can see really doing it. So I'm going to take this thing off. And Ray Comfort makes the point. He says, you know, this is what happens with the gospel. What happens is on the front end, a lot of times, instead of preaching the message that Jesus came as a savior that he came and redeemed you from sin and that he is the only way of escape, the only way to have life. Instead, we, we preach that, you know, this is going to make your life so much better following Jesus. How many of you would say 
that life has gotten easier since following Jesus. Well, in some ways, maybe you might say, oh, well, you know, there, there's something, I'm not sinning as much, there's some, you know, benefits. But really, you made an enemy of your own flesh, which is set against you and is at war with you. You made an enemy of, of, of Satan and his entire kingdom. And you made an enemy of the world whose entire way of existing and living under the power of darkness is set against your life in Christ. You, you just surrounded yourself with enemies the moment that you gave your life to Jesus. So Ray Comfort, he, he does this great flip around. He says, no, okay, now imagine you're on the plane before you have this, this encounter. And instead... The, the airline stewards, instead of coming to you and offering you something that's going to add to your journey, she comes to you with her mascara running down her face in a panic. Instead of politely handing you the parachute, she throws it at you and says, it's a parachute, put it on, <laughs> right? The plane is going down. We have no hope. We have no way of escape. This is your only hope of salvation. This is what I guarantee you. No matter how uncomfortable the journey gets, you won't take off the parachute. Right? Because you know, it's your only hope. It's your only way of escape. It is your only salvation. And here's the thing. The church at Colossae was first planted with the gospel message from a man named Epaphras. And, and Epaphras brought the gospel message in, and, and, and the church was growing. They were growing in their love for one another. They were proclaiming the gospel, and, and the church was growing at that time. And even though it wasn't one of the mega cities of Asia Minor, it was a place where the church had begin, begun to take root. But along with that, people are, are, are getting saved out of various belief systems. And, and what happens is they, they bring those belief systems with them. And rather than sort of rejecting what they had believed previously, what they seek to do is sort of harmonize that message. This is what theologians refer to as syncretism. Syncretism. So if you ever hear that term in theological circles, it's the idea that you're trying to synchronize beliefs that are outside of the revealed will of God with what is the revealed will of God in the gospel message itself. You're blending. It's like, a, it's like going to a buffet, right? And you say, I'll take a little of this, and I'll take a little of that, and I'll put this on there, and then I'm going to make my own creation here. But your own creation isn't the thing that God delivered right? It's not the message that saves. It, so this amalgamation of belief systems is beginning to infect the early church there in Colossae. In chapter 2, you'll get into it more as Sam continues to teach through this book, but there was apparently an exalting of angels, uh, a blending of some of the, the um, the reverence for Jewish feasts and holy days, for traditions, 
as well as an early influence, sort of pre-Gnostic beliefs. And, and, and Gnostics believe that the material world is what contained evil. And so that all, all that really mattered was the spiritual, that the material was inconsequential and should be rejected, and that the spiritual should be exalted and, and held up. They, they failed to see that we are not divided people, that we are, in fact, body, soul, and spirit, human, all together in one place. And so they said, you know, you, you, you just don't focus on the needs of the body. You just focus on the spiritual aspects. And, and Jesus, they believed, couldn't be an actual physical person. He must have been a spirit who mimicked physical attributes. And so instead of actually really eating Jesus was sitting there with his disciples and he would take, you know, a piece of bread and he would just sort of like, like throw it behind him or something, right? They, they just believed he, he didn't leave any footprints in the sand as he walked the shores of Galilee because he, he couldn't have a physical body because the physical world is what was corrupted. And so the beginnings of some of that belief system was present here at Colossae and, and Paul will go on in the book of Colossians to, to talk about those things and how they don't mix with the gospel. But before he does that, he's going to say, look, Jesus is your only hope. And he is your best hope. <laughs> he's the very best thing that you could count on. So don't abandon what is supreme, what is preeminent, what is best, for that which is corrupted or lesser in any way. Jesus is the parachute. Cling to Jesus. So let's dive in. We're going to pick it up in verse 13 after talking about his prayer of thanksgiving for the church. He says this in verse 13. He, that's Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. If for those of you who are note takers, our outline today is really only two points our deliverance and our deliverer. Verses 13 through 14, our deliverance. And verses 15 through 23, our deliverer. And here in, in, in focusing on our deliverance, he says this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, previous to this, he said... This transference that has taken place in verse 12, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He says, it is the Father who qualifies us. It's not our own works. We gain this status in Christ as an inheritance. It was gifted. It was left to us. You did nothing to earn it. There's no way that you could appropriate it for yourself. There's no work that you could do to gain it. He gifted it to us through his son. And then he describes what that looks like. He says here, 
He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. It's interesting, F.F. F. Bruce here, he points out that the only other time that this phrase comes up is in Luke chapter 22, verse 53. Domain of darkness or power of darkness, same phrase in the Greek, comes up in, at the time when Jesus is about to go to the cross at his arrest and at his passion. And in, in these same terms, he says, these words refer to the sinister forces marshaled against him for decisive combat, combat in the spiritual realm. Here, here's the big idea. He says, you were under an authority, under a power, whether you realize that or not. You thought maybe you were going you know, around in this world apart from Christ and apart from God and his kingdom, and that you were just sort of living in this sort of an existence. But no, you were under the power, the domain, the authority, the dominion of darkness. Everything that you were doing in that life was on a, on a crash course for the judgment of God and for hell itself. But he says, Jesus came in. And Jesus, like, like Moses delivering the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and bringing them into the land that God had promised, Jesus comes along and he delivers us from the slavery to sin that we lived in. And he transferred our citizenship from this domain of darkness over to the kingdom of light and to the kingdom of God's own son. And he did this as a gift, as an inheritance. He just left this citizenship for you. He says, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. Three things to note here. First of all, it's a change in citizenship. We were a part of one kingdom. Now we've been made a part of another. The kingdom that is already here, yet not fully revealed it will be fully revealed at the return of Christ in the fullness of time, at the full revealing of the sons of God. The whole earth will be redeemed. Everything will come under his rule. That is a future event yet that will still happen. But we are sort of this first fruits gathering. We're like the first ripe tomatoes that come off the vine at the end of summer, right? There's still the green tomatoes that haven't quite been harvested yet, but here's the red juicy, the first ones that come off. There's the joy of the anticipated harvest that is coming. We are the first fruits of that. And those of us who have been found in Christ and our citizenship has been changed, we are presently experiencing in part what we will soon experience in full for eternity. And so he says, it's a change in citizenship. We've been transferred from one kingdom to another. It's a change in value. We have redemption. Redemption refers to the act of freeing someone who is enslaved. Just, just like Israel was enslaved to Egypt, so also Yahweh has sent his son to deliver us and redeem us from our life. 
There, there was a way of living in which we were enslaved and had no power to change. We were powerless to affect freedom. But God sent his son and he brought about redemption. He brought about this, this deliverance, not just from the consequence of sin, but from the very power of sin over our lives. Not just from being under the rule and authority of the darkness, but, but delivered us from the darkness itself for eternity. <laughs> he says, this is what you've been called to. It's a change in citizenship. It's a change in value. And it is a change in status. A change in status. At one time, you were the enemy of God. At one time, you were due to to be judged by God because of your sin. I was due to be judged by God because of my sin. But God came. And through his son, you know what he did? It's through the shedding of his blood, he purchased for us forgiveness from all our sins. All of them. Past, present, future. Through one sacrifice, through the son, we have been delivered not only from one kingdom to another, and, and not only have we been given value where we had no value and, and redeemed, but also all of our past transgressions and all of our present transgressions and all of our future transgressions have already received an atoning sacrifice before the Father and they are paid for in full before the Lord. We are forgiven. Now, just a quick application. Perhaps you've had that experience, like I have, where you want to go to the Lord, maybe in devotion or in a time of prayer, or maybe you show up on a Sunday for church. And as you start to sing, the awareness of your sin, recent sin, kind of comes to the forefront. And you feel like, am I being disingenuous in lifting my hands to the Lord? You feel the weight, the condemnation of like, if, okay, if I open my Bible and, uh, right now, am I being hypocritical because I was just giving myself permission to sin in this recent event? I just failed in this way. Is this somehow hypocritical to come before the Lord? And God would say, no, no, come to me. Because I already purchased forgiveness for your sin. Your sin is no longer a hindrance to me. It's something to be repented of, absolutely. But it should never cause you fear in coming to me because I've already dealt with it, past, present, and future. Oh, what a glorious deliverance God has given us. So we we see in verses 13 and 14, 14 our deliverance. But also in in 15 and following down through verse 23, we are going to see our deliverer, our deliverer. He's going to focus in really here on the person and work and nature of Jesus in a very fantastic way. He says in verse 15, 
he is the image of the invisible God. <laughs> I love this. I love this so much because he, here's what we need to see here. Jesus fulfills what Adam failed. Adam, you remember, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. And as a result of their failure, as a result of their sin, their rebellion against God, they plunge not just humanity, but all of creation into corruption. And the whole world itself was affected. Remember, the, 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 the ground would begin to grow weeds. Do you remember that? And thorns and thistles. The creation itself was tainted by the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. They failed to bear the image of God with honor and with glory. But Jesus comes along as the last Adam. And what they failed, he succeeds in. He was tempted and tested in every point, the same as us as humans. He experienced all of it and never failed, never sinned. He bore the image correctly. But it's not just that. When he, when he emphasizes here that he is the image of the invisible God, he's saying what you can't see about God is revealed in the Son. Oh, this is so powerful. This is why I love reading the Gospels. This is why I love meditating upon. I like to always, in my devotions, I try to always keep a foot in the Gospels. Whether I'm reading Old Testament or New Testament, I always try and have a foot in the Gospels continuously. Because, listen, Jesus reveals to us the exact nature of the Father. And this has real practical implications in the way that we love one another. If you want to know how Jesus responds to somebody who's covered in shame, take a look at Jesus and his, his interactions with the woman who was caught in adultery at her most vulnerable moment, at her, at, at her worst moment, and she's stripped bare in front of a crowd of people, caught in the very act. She is soaked in her shame. And Jesus says to her, where are your accusers? Does no man condemn you? Neither do I. Right? Now go, sin no more. You see his grace and his mercy in that moment. If you want to know how he responds to people who are puffed up with religious pride, look at Jesus and the way he interacts with the proud religious people of his day. How he tells the story of, of, of two people who came to give a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee says, Oh God, I thank you that you, you haven't made me a, a dog or a woman or like this tax collector over here. And then the tax collector couldn't even lift his eyes and he beat his chest as he came before the Lord. And he said, oh God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus says, one person went away justified. And it wasn't the religious person. It was the one who called out for mercy. 
You want to see how God deals with the sick and infirmed. Look at the way he laid hands on before he healed, right? Where he touches the leper, then he heals the leper because the leper needed to know that he was loved in his worst before he was redeemed and healed. You see his compassion. You see him weep at the, the tomb of his friend Lazarus. You see him enter in. He knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that that's coming, but he enters into the sorrow of his death and he weeps at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. We see him weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. We see his interactions with family and friends and how he discipled. And guys, listen, when we look at Jesus, we get to know who God the Father is. He's God with skin on. So, Paul here, quoting this hymn, he says, He is the image, the icon in the Greek, the likeness, the representation, the statue, the imprint on a coin, the wax seal of who God is. When you look at him, you see who the Father is. He's the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn here. In this context, the Greek word used here, prototokos, affirms Christ's supremacy and sovereignty over all things. Now, in its context, prototokos refers primarily to preeminent status. It doesn't refer to him being sort of um, created first in, in order, as though Christ was created. And the following verses, I think, help make that clear and unpack that for us a little bit. But there's a little bit of confusion, especially when you get into talking with people who are from uh, a JW background, Jehovah's Witness background, or a Mormon background. There's a lot of confusion about Jesus being the firstborn of creation. And they take that to mean that he was the first created being, or the supreme created being. But what we'll see here is that he actually is the creator, as we move down through these verses. Well, then what does firstborn mean? It means he's the preeminent one. Again, if you could think back to the Old Testament, you think about the story of Jacob and Esau. Remember, who was the firstborn between Jacob and Esau? Anybody remember? Esau was. And what did Jacob do? He stole the rights of the firstborn and the blessing, right? It was a, it was a, a, a status symbol, within the hierarchy of a family. It was, you were due to inherit everything as a consequence of being the firstborn, okay? So he says, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He's the preeminent one, the, the one who has status above all others. And he says, for by him, verse 16, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Okay, here's, here's where it gets good. Jesus is the creator. Hebrews 1 tells us the same thing. Jesus is the one by whom and for whom and through whom 
Everything that has been made ever has been made, has been created. He is the originator of everything that exists, both things that are visible that you can see, touch, taste, hear, things that are visible, or things that are invisible, things that you can't see. He created all of it. And then he gets real specific. He says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now, here's, here's an interesting thing. There is, there's a subtle reference here to what is called by theologians cosmic geography. Cosmic geography. Now, the, the perspective of first century Jews and even all the way people uh, that were raised Jewish throughout the Old Testament was this idea of cosmic geography. And that is that back at the Tower of Babel, the world itself was divided up, not only just through languages into people groups, but that heavenly beings, angelic beings, were given authority over people groups throughout the earth. And that what happened over the course of time is that the people began to worship those angelic beings rather than God himself. And so the origination of all of the false deities, all of the false gods that is out there, really comes down from this, this understanding that the world was, was apportioned out to the divine council, or these rulers, these principalities, these powers, these authorities in high places that have authority over the universe. Again, this is brought up in the book of Daniel. You remember how when Daniel prayed and asked for an answer from the Lord, and I think it's Daniel chapter 7, and, and, and the angel says to him, when the angel finally arrives with the answer, he says, from the first moment that you prayed, I was sent to you, but then I encountered the prince of Persia, this angelic being, and we had conflict, and I had to call Michael the archangel to come and help me in this spiritual conflict with the prince of Persia. And he says, now I'm going, and I'm going to have to go tangle with the prince of Greece as well. So this angelic being is saying there's, there's another war that's going to be happening between me and the prince of Greece. And this is also what you see in, in the story of Naaman. You remember Naaman, the Assyrian general who comes to be healed of leprosy by Elijah the prophet. When he shows up, Elijah tells him to go and dip in the Jordan. He dips. He, uh, his leprosy is healed and, and, and goes away. And then what he does, it's a strange thing. You might think it's a, a weird thing, but Naaman says, okay, well, uh, I have to go back to my own country. What I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to scoop up a bunch of the dirt here in Israel, and I'm going to take it back with me to Assyria. Now, we, we think that's weird. Like, okay, why are you taking the dirt home? But it's this understanding of cosmic geography. The God who rules over the land of Israel is going to be my God as well. And so I will worship him on his own ground, on his own land, right? So he takes the soil, the dirt, back with him to Assyria. And so here is what now Paul is, is getting at here. He says, By him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and vi invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Listen, all the angelic beings and all the principalities and rulers of the earth 
all of these spiritual entities, both who are surrendered to God and those who are in rebellion against God, they are all created by Jesus. He's not one of them. He's the creator of them. And they were created through him, and they were created for him. So, question. These principalities and powers, they are given in some way a, a right to rule here on earth, if you will. But who has supreme authority over them? Jesus. <laughs> okay, so backing up, what's so special about Jesus? Well, first of all, he's the image of God. We see who God is through Jesus. He makes the invisible God visible. And he's the firstborn of all creation. He's the one who inherits everything from the Father and then dispenses it to his brothers and sisters, to us, those who have been adopted into the family of God. And he's the creator of all things. And he has authority over everything on earth and everything invisible that you cannot see. Even the principalities and powers themselves are under his authority and under his rule. And everything that has been made has been made through him and for him. Oh, this is getting good. Verse 17. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He's before all things. He is the one who is in priority before all things. He comes first above everything. But he is also the one who is in order. Before creation existed, creator existed. See that? Before there was creation, there was creator. Creation came from creator. And he is first and before all things, and in him all things hold together. <laughs> this is amazing to me, especially when you think about what we're learning through science, right? You think about like the cosmos and the world, like what keeps the world from just like flying off into space? What keeps it at the perfect distance from the sun? What keeps the moon circling the earth at the perfect distance to where the tides aren't too severe that it destroys all life or, or too minimal that life cannot exist? Who is it that does that? In the, in the middle of an atom, you take an atom, right? You have tightly packed protons in the middle, and then you have these electrons that are sort of circling around the nucleus, these tightly packed protons in the middle. What happens with positive charges, positive-like charges? What should they do? Anybody know? They should push apart, right? Same charge should push apart. But you have these tightly packed particles, these protons, in the middle that are glued together and do not leave. Why? Why don't they repel? Why do they defy scientific understanding? Like, we figured out how to split an atom. How did that go for us? Bad things happened, right? 
What is holding the very atomic structure itself together? The Bible tells us right here, it is the power and authority of Jesus Christ that does that. In him, everything is held together. He's not only the creator, but he's the sustainer of everything that exists. (laughs) And, verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. So not only is he the one who bears the image of God, of the invisible God, makes him visible, not only is he the firstborn, the preeminent one in creation, not only is he the one who created everything, even powers, principalities, authorities, thrones, dominions, not only that, but he's also the one for whom and through whom those things exist in the first place. And he is first above everything, and in him all things are held together. And guess what else? He is the head of the church. Oh, man. Think with me. How many attacks have come against the church throughout the ages? Even presently, right? Like there's a lot of present debate about the validity of the church and whether or not it should be supported by society and all this, all this stuff, right? How many attacks have been launched against the church? And sometimes the attacks come not only from without, but from within. How much opposition has there been against the church? But who is calling the shots for the church? Who's directing it? Jesus. And he goes through seasons where he purges and he purifies and he refines. But listen, the church started out with 120 people in an upper room. We're two billion strong right now across the planet. The kingdom of God has continued just to flourish and increase. And and despite the imperfections of the church and despite the infighting, even right now, you guys know the huge controversy that exists within the church over racial tension and whether or not we should listen to the government and all of these things. And, And people are fighting brothers against brothers and sisters against sisters with their political opinions about who should be the next president and everything else. And the tension is real and there's real conflict. But who is holding? holding the church together? Jesus. (laughs) He still continues to be faithful in the midst of our hard-headedness and our sinful hearts and our pride and our strong opinions. He still just holds us together because he is the head of the body. He is directing the course of the kingdom. He's the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He started the church. He was there at the beginning, right? And he's the first one to be raised from the dead and brought to glory in his ascension to the Father. And now we, who have trusted in Jesus, have that same destiny that Jesus now currently enjoys being resurrected and glorified and living in the presence of the Father forever and ever. That's our eternal destiny. (laughs) He says, 
Jesus is the head of the body. He was the one who started it. He's the, he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead in order that in everything he might be preeminent. The word preeminent there is protuon, protuon. It means supreme. So again, I, I don't want to... I don't want to beat the dead horse. Well, that's not true. I'm a preacher. Sometimes I like to link two or three dead horses together and then whip them repeatedly, <laughs> hoping to make the point as clear as possible. Okay? But let's, just, let's review. Why is he supreme? Why is he the protuon? Because he's the exact image, he's the creator. He has authority over heaven and earth. He holds everything together. He's the head of the church. He's the founder of the church. He's the first to rise from the dead who guarantees resurrection for all those who believe in him. And then he's going to go on to say, and it's in him that all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. And everything in the world is going to be reconciled unto him. Why is he supreme? Because he's the ruler of everything. He's bigger than anything. He's better than anything that we could possibly imagine. Jesus is indeed supreme. Verse 19, for in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Everything that God is is found in Christ Jesus. Everything that God is is found in Christ Jesus. When you get Jesus, you get it all. He's not just the parachute. He's the wind that holds it up. He's the soft landing at the bottom. He's the strings that are attached to you. He's the whole shebang. When you get Jesus, you get it all. So why, Colossian church, would you abandon everything that you have in Christ for something else. He's preeminent. And if you have him, you have enough. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross, that one act of obedience, surrendering his life to the cross, he becomes at one moment both the high priest who leads God's people into his presence and the sacrifice who makes it possible for them to enter in without being struck dead in the presence of his holiness. He is both the just one and the justifier of those that follow him. He is indeed 
preeminent above all things, and he made peace with God by the blood of his cross. And you, he says, who were once alienated, outsiders, and hostile in mind, antagonistic to God, living in such a way that was an offense to the image of God that was placed upon you, imprinted upon you by nature of your created being. God said, let me give my breath to Adam. Right? And Adam became a living soul. And then with the same breath, Adam rejected God. And with the same breath that we've received, our very being was an animosity with God. Our nature was to say, no, it's my breath. And God is saying, no, give me my breath back. It's created for my glory. For my purpose. Our rebellion is a violation on a cosmic scale against who God is and the gift and his benevolence and his blessing in our lives by nature of how we were created in his image. And he says, you were alienated, you were hostile in mind, and you were doing evil deeds, but he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him. <laughs> Our breath was an offense against God. Spiritual halitosis. Our life was an offense against God. We do not bear his image well. But through his death, on the cross, in our place, as a sacrifice on our behalf. Forgiveness of sins was granted. And not only forgiveness of sins, but he says, he did this in order to present you holy, holy, set apart for God's glory, set apart for his use and his purpose in a way that, that sin marred, now we've been restored to be used for God's purpose like a holy instrument in the temple of God, in the tabernacle. We are set apart for one use, for one purpose, that all that we are, body, soul, and spirit, might be given over to the service and glory of who God is. holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He says in verse 23, and here's the warning, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Here's the main idea, guys. Because Jesus is preeminent in all things, 
we follow Jesus as followers of Jesus into all that God has promised. He's first in authority. He's first in creation, first in holding creation together, first in death, first in eternal life, and we're following him into all of that victory. He's the one who goes before us. He's the forerunner into the presence of the Father. He's the forerunner into resurrection life and glory. And we are following in his footsteps in that same pathway, on that same trajectory even now. He is both the high priest that we follow into the true holy of holies, and he is the sacrifice. And by the blood of his sacrifice, we are reconciled unto God, and he is our only way in. So Paul says, so don't let go of him. Cling to Jesus. Grab a hold of him and don't let go for the whole of your life. Don't get pulled off into sidebar issues that you think make you holier in some way. Jesus makes you holy. Don't get pulled off into sidebar issues that, think, that make you think that this is going to somehow save you from your shame. Jesus saves you from your shame. Don't get pulled off into psychological things or trickery that makes you think that this is how you're going to get delivered from sin. Jesus saves you from sin. Cling to Jesus and to him alone. All the fullness of God has been put into Jesus Christ. Not into a church, not into a priesthood, not into a building, not into a sacrament, not into the saints, not into a method or a program, but into Jesus Christ himself. It was put into him as a distribution point so that those who wanted more of God would come to Jesus. They would grab a hold of him. And find all that God is. So you say, okay, good stuff. Great stuff to think about. So what? <laughs> what does this mean? How does this affect us today? I can tell you this. Our world jumps from topic to topic, telling us the next thing that will finally make us whole or save us. If you follow social media or the news, we just jump from one thing. If this is right, then the world will finally be right. If you have the next car, if you get the right president, if you wear a mask or if you don't wear a mask or if, you, if, if we find a cure for COVID or if, or if you, you finally, your kids turn out just the way you wanted them to or if you have the happy marriage or if you have this, your life will finally be whole. It will finally be complete. It'll finally be everything that you wanted it to be. Hogwash. Listen, the Bible argues against us. It says to us, a fresh government leader or an old government leader won't save us. Spiritual disciplines will not save and deliver us. Theological knowledge will not save us. Masks won't save us. A lack of suffering won't save us. 
save us. It won't make us feel whole. We won't feel better simply because 2020 is over. The success of your kids won't save you. A cure for COVID won't save you. The next toy that you buy will not save you. A happy marriage will not save you. Nothing in the world can make our lives right except for Jesus. Only Jesus cleanses us of all sin. Only Jesus makes us holy so that we can stand before the Father. Only Jesus supplies to the body of Christ all that it needs in life. Only Jesus will resurrect us from the dead because he has the power and the keys of death itself. Only Jesus can bring us to glory and transform these mortal bodies into immortal bodies so that we can stay in God's presence for eternity. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus has authority of every principality and power and ruler of this world, both thrones that are physical and thrones that are spiritual, all fall under the rule of Jesus. And there is no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved other than the name of Jesus. So what's Paul's point to the Colossian church? And what's his word, I think, to us today? Cling to Jesus. Cling to him like he's a parachute on a plane that's going down. Don't let go of them. Meditate on, draw close to, love and worship and talk to and be friends with Jesus. Because when you get him, you get it all. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you've given us in your son. It's only when we stop and we think about the words that you've said about him that that the the reality of this comes to the forefront. He's the creator and sustainer of everything. He's the one who has power over all the thrones and dominions of the earth, visible and invisible. He's the one who was raised from the dead. God, we are so grateful that you gave us everything in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, when we want saving from something in life, may we turn to Jesus. When we want to feel like our world is right, no matter how chaotic it is around us, may we turn to your Son. May we worship you, love you with our whole hearts, and cling to you as the only name under heaven whereby men can be saved. Thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for the inheritance that we are due to receive. Thank you for the victory victory that we have, that nothing can separate us from your love because that love is in your son. Not life, not death, not principalities, not powers, not things present, not things to come. Nothing is able to separate us from you because we are found hidden in Christ Jesus. Lord, we praise you for the work that you've done through your son.
As we go our way, may our eyes and our minds and our hearts be so filled with the awareness of how great it is to love you and your son that it is our constant obsession and our only hope. Make us fanatics who can't change our minds and won't change the subject. We're constantly talking about you. We ask this in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for letting me share the word with you. And uh, Sam will be back next week. God bless you. Have a great day.